that we would know more of your love for us, know more of your character, God, and that would compel us to, uh, to respond by honoring you and glorifying you, by living our lives for the joy and progress of others, to be ones who, by the power of the Holy Spirit, are builders of your kingdom, not builders of our own kingdom. So God, I'm, uh, I'm a beggar in need of grace this morning, as every morning. And God, I pray that we would uh, just approach your scripture that way, God, that we are just in need of your um, sustaining and transforming grace this morning. We love you. We thank you that you are here with us. And I just pray, God, that you would affect change in us. And we pray all this in the powerful and glorious name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And God's people said, amen. amen. Good morning. As they say in Nigeria, and Eric and Cindy, don't laugh at me. I'm not even sure what language this is, but Wally Jam. Wally Jam, and you respond, Jam. And I'm not sure, it doesn't make sense. Is that even close? Yeah, that's close. That's close. <laughs> Good. You know what I'm talking about, right? It's full on, full foldy. Full foldy, yes. So, Wally Jam. Jam. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's great to be back. Um, we got back on Wednesday night. I was gone just, uh, just at two weeks, right about 13 days. And a couple of highlights. One of the highlights was, um, and you're going to hear more about it, God willing, in about a month, was just traveling with Eric. Um, just to, um, just a man and his family that had been in Nigeria for 11 years to be able to uh, travel with him. And, and uh, he's like a rock star over there. Everybody knows him. Um, and he knows everybody. And maybe more importantly is that I went over there. This is my fourth time going over there. And I think you've actually heard me say this, is that, that um, I don't, think that Nigeria is a very pretty place, and I think the food sucks. Um, um, but the people are amazing. But what I found is, is that Nigeria really is a beautiful place, that there is some beautiful country, particularly um, headed up to where you all live. And some of the food, um, like masa, and uh, those beef on a stick, suya, suya, I mean, that was amazing stuff. So that was, that was a highlight. Another highlight was um, what the Lord often does is he, he's always at work. He's always at work. Sometimes we just don't recognize him working, but he's always at work. He's at, he's at work every minute in every aspect of our lives. And he is at work in Nigeria. And he was at work at me in Nigeria. And I feel like he uniquely prepared me for this particular passage um, this morning. And we're going to see this morning where Paul expresses his desire to honor the Lord by living for the joy and the progress of others. That, that Paul's going to talk about that, that where we find um, ultimate joy and fulfillment is by living for the joy and progress of others, not for our own sake. And I saw this in such tangible ways in Nigeria. For example, Bob and Gita and Maimuna. Um, how many of you remember uh, Bob and Gita? We're here when Bob and Gita actually visited us. You remember that just that infectious smile? And uh, just that joy that he had, it's, it's not manufactured. That this, this man and his woman, right now they're, they're in seminary. They've taken a, a break from the mission field. Um, they've, been, um, they've been working for an organization called EMS, which is the missions arm for the largest denomination in West Africa, Africa called ECWA, E-C-W-A. And they've taken a break to get uh, further educated. Bob and Gita was a, is a Fulani. He um, was a former Muslim. He was uh, formerly illiterate. And now he's in seminary. And he's trying to get better equipped to, to uh, make disciples. Well, while in seminary, they've not taken a break from living on mission. 
In fact, in seminary, in the midst of their um, studies, they are ministering to people um, that are in seminary, that um, have marriages that are broken, that are living in sin, in pornography and other types of sin. And to take it another step further, every chance they have, every break they have from school on the weekends, they're going to the hospitals and they're going to the prison to minister to those who are either far from Christ who, or who need to be encouraged in their progress with Christ. One example that stands out to me is, um, is because we get to, you get to meet the people from Niger. Um, it's pretty crazy that as Bob and Gita and Maimuna visited the hospital, they came across a, Ful- a Fulani man. And Fulani, just as a reminder, is the largest unreached nomadic people group on the planet. Um, they are, um, most of the killing that's going on in Nigeria, there's been over 750 people killed in Nigeria in small villages in the last year and a half, and they're Fulani that are doing the killing. Um, it is, um, it's a people group that are far from Christ, and Babangida is a former Fulani. But his desire is to reach these people. His desire is to reach these people with the gospel of Jesus Christ because he knows that that's the only hope they have. That sure, uh, making them literate might be good for them to get better jobs, but the only help they hope they have is to, uh, is to find Jesus. So they went to the hospital, and they came across a gentleman from the country of Niger, which is just to the north of Nigeria. And this man had a tumor around his neck. I'll show you a picture sometime that was like he swallowed a 10-pound weight. It stuck out all the way around the circumference of his neck about two inches. And this man eventually died. But what happened is, is that Bob and Gita got to know his kids. My Muna got to know his kids, and a couple of these kids came to faith. A couple of them already professed faith, and they helped them to progress in their faith. They actually, um, during their spring break, I guess they actually have spring break. They may not call it that. They traveled to Niger, to Ni- the country of Niger, and they actually lived in the desert for two weeks with these families that they met in the hospital. The point is, is that there's no break from living on mission. That we live in a culture that we go from one vacation, one um, purchase to another. And I'm going to talk about that today. And my prayers is that you don't feel condemned or guilty in any way, unless, of course, you are guilty. My hope is, is to bring forth the point that, it's, that God's good gifts aren't bad, but what's better is living for the giver of those gifts, not living for the gifts themselves. And I want to just, um, just show you just a, a minute and a half clip of, of Bob and Gita Maimuna. They just want to welcome you. And I want you to see Greet his face. all Windsor Community Church, Colorado. I feel joy and happiness to say thank you so much. We actually great grateful to you for your prayers, your support, to enable us to do what we are doing today. We are reaching the prison, and the prisoners know the Lord Jesus Christ. We are reaching hospital. Cooking, sharing love through, taking food, visiting and sharing the gospel. Many come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Maimuna go to the uh, children and we visit some different places to reach out to the Muslim. Thank you so much, Windsor Community Church. We are say are grateful. Thank you so much for your support, your prayers and encouragement. Thank you for allowing the senior pastor Pastor Dan, to visit us. This is another great encouragement. You encourage us all the time. We are grateful. Thank you so much. Hello, Windsor Community Church. Thank you. My name is Maimuna. Thank you for your support. Thank you for your financial support. Thank you for allowing Pastor Dan to come and visit us. We are happy. Thank you very much. Greet all the church members and, the, and your children. God bless you. 
What you see there, first of all, that bed that they were sitting on, um, it's, they're living in a seminary. They live in a compound with 38 other people that share one bathroom. And he told me that, that in the show, and this is a, not a bathroom like we know it, it's, it's basically um, a, a seat to a hole in the ground. And he tells me that the women struggle with what he called a toilet disease. He's in, they're, they're constantly um, uh, dealing with disease because of the dirty toilet. Um, that bed that he was sitting on, that was actually a mosquito net over, over the top of him. And it's, um, their um, house is uh, probably a little bit smaller than the stage in that um, uh, five kids and two adults live in that. And there's one kitchen with one burner for all those people. And what you saw right there is the joy of the Lord. That, that, their, that their joy is not rooted in their circumstances. What they don't know, they don't know. And we, we um, should never feel guilty about being born in the United States and having what we have. But we should be cognizant of the fact that we go from, we continue to, um, our, our joy um, ebbs and flows based on what we have and what we don't have. Our joy increases based on, on one vacation to the next vacation. And I want to just encourage us this morning through the word that um, our joy actually comes from honoring the Lord with our life and living for the progress and the joy of other people. What actually sucks the joy out of us is when we live for the joy and progress of ourselves without thinking of other people. The other night, I was explaining to someone the phrase that the Lord allowed me to come up with called delay the decay. And it comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where Paul says, take heart. Take heart, even though the outer man is decaying, The inner man is being renewed day by day. Take heart, he says, that even though that we're dying, that every human being is is decaying, that the inner man is looking more like Jesus Christ day by day. And we're talking about working out. We're talking about eating healthy. We're talking about sleeping a lot so that we can delay the decay. We can't stop the decay but we can delay it by living a healthy lifestyle. And he goes, yeah, so that we can have fun in our older age. And I said, no! The goal is not to have fun. I want you to hear me on this. Um, If you hang around me a little bit, you know that I'm all about fun. And And we're to be joyful people, enjoying the good gifts that God has given us, and to have fun with them. Our goal is not to have fun. That's not the end. The end is the joy and progress of other people for the sake of the honor and glory of our Father who is in heaven. Living for the next vacation or living for the next hunting trip or the next fishing trip should not be our goal. Having a secure retirement should not be our ultimate goal. None of those are bad. None of those are bad. I'm hoping to enjoy every one of those. But if that's our sole aim, we're, we're going to find ourselves not honoring the Lord. We're going to find ourselves living selfish lives that are not for the progress and the joy of other people. So let me ask you this morning. Well, first of all, don't ever send me to Nigeria again. 
What are you living for? What are you living for? What should think about it? What are you living for? And whatever that answer is, why are you living for that? Where does pleasure, leisure, and vacation fit in? How would you fill in the answer? To live is what? For you, to live is what? To live is what? What would the ideal life look like for you? What do you envision your life looking like in 10 years? How will you be spending your time in 10 years and why? Just a quick review. This letter is being written to a church, a church in Philippi made up like you and I, a church that is on track, a church that is progressing well in their faith. But Paul wants to encourage them to continue pressing on because he knows that that they, like us today, particularly living in our culture, it's easy to let our first love grow cold. So Paul is not telling them that their first love has grown cold. He is reminding them to press on and honor the Lord so that their first love does not grow cold. Last week, Jason taught through the previous verses, and we saw Paul rejoice that the gospel of Jesus Christ was being preached. Even though it was being preached by people that had an agenda against Paul, Paul says, whether I, he says, I rejoice whether the gospel is being preached in truth or in pretense. Paul is not about defending himself. He's about the gospel of Jesus Christ going forward. He says, I rejoice that the gospel is going forth. And then today in verse, second half of verse 18, he says, yes, and I will rejoice. What's his second rejoicing in? Verse 19, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Delivered from what? Paul's in prison. Probably not being tortured. But he doesn't know if he's getting out. He says, he says I rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit, Jesus Christ, uh, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. This could either mean his deliverance from prison or his deliverance from this life on earth. We don't know for sure. If he's delivered out of prison, he'll take it. But he's not putting his hope in being delivered from this temporal circumstance. But he does have divine assurance that he will one day be delivered from the imperfections of this life. And no matter what you're going through today, that, that as saints, we're going to pray that the Lord delivers you from it. That's what we do as a body. We don't like to see each other suffer. That's when one grieves, we all grieve. But our hope is not in you being delivered from that temporal circumstance. Our hope is in the promise that you will be delivered from that circumstance once and for all, either at the return of Christ or when you go to meet him. Paul says, In 2 Timothy 4.18, he says, The Lord will rescue or deliver me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Paul is saying, you know what? what, The the fuel that keeps me going every day is not the promise that I'm going to be delivered from this temporary circumstance, but the promise that one day I'll be delivered. 
that one day my salvation will be complete. Whatever Paul's precise meaning is here, he was certain he would be freed from his temporal distress. Yes, I will rejoice. He rejoices in the promise promise of deliverance. His joy is anchored in the promise, not in his circumstances. Can you say that this morning? Is your joy anchored in the promise of your ultimate deliverance and salvation? Or is your joy anchored in the uncertainty of deliverance tomorrow from whatever it, is you're, whatever it is you're going through? Paul's joy is anchored in the certainty of his salvation. The certainty that he, would, that he who began a good work in him would bring it to completion. What's your joy anchored in this morning? What's your joy anchored in? Like you and I, Paul was human. He had times of doubt, but as he remembered that others were praying for him, in verse 19, he was confident that the Spirit of Jesus Christ would empower him to endure every trial and secure his deliverance. You see, the prayers of the saints and the indwelling Spirit fueled his confidence in this difficult situation. The power of prayer. The power of prayer may not always deliver us from our temporal circumstance, but it's fuel to know that others are standing with us and that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can endure and persevere in anything that comes our way. There's something supernatural that happens when we pray for each other. James 5.16 says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. In verse 20, with the prayers of the saints and the help of the Spirit, Paul eagerly expects and hopes that he will not be ashamed and he would courageously and boldly honor Christ with his life and in his dying. You see, the prayers of the saints and the reminder of God's empowering Spirit didn't change and it didn't strengthen the promise, but it gave him the fuel to live in light of that promise and honor Christ in his living and dying. You see, the prayers and the Spirit didn't didn't do anything to um, strengthen that promise. It just was fuel for him him to live in light of that promise. And having an eager expectation and hope indicates a keen anticipation of the future. What Paul isn't saying here is that, man, I I hope everything works out. I hope I'm delivered. You know, I I hope that's the case. No, he's, he has a, a keen anticipation of the future. Just uh, maybe a poor illustration, but I was thinking about this. A couple of months ago, we haven't seen Joey and Brittany since January. You know, and I wish I could see them every day. And, um, and I had a, I've had a hope that I would see Joey at some point soon, over the last several months. And it was just a hope. I didn't know. It was, there was no ticket. There was no, nothing on the calendar. I didn't know when I could do that. But you know what? Several weeks ago, we bought a ticket. And we're going to see him this Saturday. So I have, I have a eager expectation and a sure hope. The ticket has been punched, and that's what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying that my ticket has been punched. I know I'm going to be delivered. And therefore, I have an eager expectation and hope to live in light of that. And to honor the Lord with my life. And to not be ashamed. And I didn't really know where to fit this in, but I wanted to fit it in, so I'll just do it here. Um, A lady that I met with when I was in Nigeria, Nancy and I had met with her before, her name's Judy Strand. 
And Judy's 65. I didn't realize she was that old. And she's been over there going on 40 years, that single woman. She's had many death threats. She's, she's had to take up an apartment in Joss, um, which is about uh, an hour from her home in Giray because she's had death th- threats there. I said, and she says, I'm going to retire in five years at age 70. I said, Judy, I mean, maybe the Lord's releasing you now. Maybe, maybe he's releasing you go back to the States now so that your life would be preserved. And she said to me, she said, that'd be worse. She said, that'd be worse. You know, that's not for me. It's not even for you, but that was for her. She says, I can't tuck tail and run. I've got too much to do here. God's called me to this ministry. Even as she was saying that, I got teared up. I couldn't imagine. And Paul says in verse 21, he says, for me to live is Christ. To die is gain. Remember who Paul was before he came to Christ? His name was Saul. And before Saul encountered Christ on the Damascus road, he had been the center of his own world. He would have said to live as Saul, to die is pain. But now he says to live is Christ, to die is gain. You see, Paul's conversion was a revolution of sorts. Paul was no longer, after his conversion, the center of his universe. Christ was. And he's going to explain further in these uh, verses 22, 22 through 25. He says, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress in joining the faith. Paul is doing a little mental gymnastics on paper. He's asking the question, is it better for me to live? Is it better for me to die? He says if he lives, it means fruitful labor. What Paul doesn't mention here is that living means wanting to live and experience all of God's good gifts. He does and he should and we do and we should. But he says living means fruitful labor. And not even to just age 59 and a half where we can get social security and go out and collect seashells for the rest of our life. He says living means fruitful labor. Verse 23, what should I do? He says, I'm hard pressed between the two. I want what is better. He says, death is far better because I will be with Christ. Notice he doesn't say death is far better because you'll be in a place where there's no more sin, no more suffering, or no more death. He doesn't say death is better because you're going to be reunited with loved ones. He says That it's far better because he will be with what? With Christ. All those other things are true and they're great and they're glorious that we will be in a place where there's no more sin. There's no more pain. There's no more death. We will be reunited with loved ones who passed before us. But the point of heaven is being with Christ. He's our treasure. He's the treasure of every believer. He is our ultimate treasure. 
You see, in verse 24, we see that Paul gives priority to the life and needs of the community, which overrule his own personal desires and goals. Paul's, like, if Paul had a choice, he would never take his life. But if he had a choice, if God says, you want to come home now, or do you want to stay here? He goes, I want to come home now. I want to be with you. But you see, Paul isn't one who lives a life that is, that is um, living for his own preferences and his own agenda. That Paul lives a life that is for the progress and the joy of other people. When you build that house, that second home, buy that boat, finish a basement like we just did our house, are you thinking of other people? Are you asking the question, how can I use this? How can I use these good gifts for the joy and progress of other people, not just for my own selfish needs? He says to remain is more necessary on your account. You see, the rhetorical purpose of pointing both to his own desires and to his subsequent decisions is that Paul presents a pattern of behavior which he encourages the Philippian community to follow and he encourages us to follow. By expressing his clear preference for death so that he can be with Christ, and he, he discloses his quandary over his decision about life and death. And reaching the conclusion that he will remain alive for their sakes, Paul shows that their needs and what is best for them takes precedent over his own personal preferences. That is so countercultural. That is so different from what we've been bred with in America. That every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. And it's not just for our enjoyment alone, but it's for the progress and the joy of other people. His encouragement here is intended to be exemplary to the Philippians. You see, Paul's life is patterned after Christ's life and death. The way of Christ is a way of service. To live as Christ is to live as he lived for the sake of others. Jesus gave us, Jesus not only saved us, but he gave us a model to follow. That's what it means to live in light of the gospel. We're going to talk about this in a couple of weeks, but there's this beautiful uh, poetic illustration of Christ's ultimate sacrifice for others in chapter 2, verses 4 through 11. And I'm going to read chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. Paul says, let each of you look not to his own interests but also to the interests of others. He's not saying that you can't look at your own interests. No, he says don't look only at your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That's the pattern that Paul's life is following, and that's the pattern of our life. Mark 10, 45, Jesus said, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to what? To serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In Matthew 22, 36 through 40, the Pharisee asked Jesus what the greatest commandment is. And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're to pattern your love for others after the love that Christ has shown to you. 
We're to love God. We're to love people. Some other examples. He puts this forth in, in Philippians 2, verses 19 through 22. He, he brings forth Timothy as a pattern to follow. Verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Are you genuinely concerned for the welfare of others? If so, how do you know that? Verse 21, or verse 20. I know verse 21. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. He's talking about the world. He's talking to those who are not in Christ. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. You see, Timothy is an example of one who genuinely cares for the welfare of others. Another example is in Philippians chapter 2, verses 29 through 30. He uses the example of Epaphroditus who nearly died for the work of Christ. He risked his own life to complete what was lacking in, in the Philippian church's service to Paul. He says this, So receive him, receive Epaphroditus in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For here he nearly died for the work of Christ. Makes me think of Judy Strand. Risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. That he risked his life for the sake of Paul. And then finally in chapter 3 verses 19 to 20, Paul puts himself out there as an example. He says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. These are people that have professed at one point of faith in Jesus Christ. But he describes them. He says their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. He says these are people that find no ultimate joy and hope in Christ. But they find their ultimate joy and hope in one thing after another on this earth. And then he goes on to say, but our citizenship is in heaven. Our ticket has been punched. Our deliverance and salvation is sure. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, folks, this message is really for me. This is really for me this morning. And I trust it's for you as well. Because we all love each other a little too much. Self-love and the encouragement to live for ourselves is big business in America and Western Europe. There's a well-known cosmetic company that sells its products by paying celebrities to recite the company's mantra, because you're worth it. Because you're worth it. Pamper yourself. Spend all your money on yourself. Go from one vacation to the next uh, to find lasting hope and fulfillment because you're worth it. Whitney Houston once sang, learning to love yourself is the greatest gift of all. Sorry, Whitney, you missed it by a huge margin. We don't need to love ourselves. That comes all too naturally for us. You see, the Bible tells us that we were not made for that. We were made to love others. We are made to love God and love others. As you read through Genesis 1, it's easy to detect a rhythm and a pattern to the story 
of humanity. Each section in Genesis 1 begins with the words, then God said. And it ends with the words, there was evening and there was morning. Day 6 began in the same way. Then God said. But in verse 26, the rhythm is interrupted. God begins a conversation using the words, us and our. Let us make man in our image, like after our likeness. You see, man was to the image of the complex, man was to be the image of the complex deity that was God. That is why it was Adam and Eve together. It was Adam and Eve in relationship who were to bear God's image. It was that they loved one another and took responsibility for one another that revealed the character of the, character of the creator. Although this is implicit in Genesis 1 account, it becomes more explicit in Genesis 2. The writer fills in some of the detail of the great panorama he has painted for us in the first chapter. Eve was made after Adam, but it was not merely as a supplement to him to cure his loneliness, loneliness men. It was as one suitable for him that he could love. When Adam, as Eve's head, loved her, and Eve, as Adam's helper, loved him, they were walking, talking, living images of the complex, interpersonal God who made them. This is highly significant, and this should inform all of our relationships. At the fundamental level, this answers the question many of us asked at some time in our life. Who am I? Who am I, and what is my life all about? If we believe the Genesis account that, we're, that, that we no longer have to face, then we'll, have to, we'll no longer, excuse me, if we believe the Genesis account, we will no longer have to face the prospect of a midlife crisis or fear of getting lost forever in dark about the point of our existence. Why do you exist? You and I are made to be a lover of God and a lover of others, first and foremost. So whether I'm a preacher, whether I'm a teacher, whether I'm an underwear stitcher, it doesn't matter whether you're an unemployed shelf stacker, whether you are an engineer, whether you're a doctor, whether you're a nurse, it doesn't matter. God's call on your life is to be a lover of him and a lover of others. That's what defines you is God's love for you. And your job description is to love him back, not to gain anything, but because you already have what? Received everything. And the way that we bring him honor and glory is living in submission to him by loving others, by serving others. Can you see the far-reaching implications of this perspective? Loving self is the cruelest of all slaveries. It promises everything and it delivers nothing. Loving God and others is the most liberating of all freedoms. It promises everything and it gives us more than we could ever imagine. Living for our own pleasure and comfort in the end will always come up empty. Spend some time in the intensive care ward. People that are dying and ask them, what they wish they would have spent more time doing. And it, you're never going to hear, I wish I would have gone on that one more vacation or I would have saw this part of the world. I would have eaten at, that, eaten at that restaurant. Even though it's not bad to have those desires. It's I wish I would have spent more time honoring and glorifying my Savior by loving and serving other people.
Verse 25, he says, convinced of this, convinced that I'm left here for you. I'm going to do everything I can for your progress and joy. Not for my progress and joy, but for your progress and joy. And I hope you do everything you can for my progress and joy. And that makes a radical Christ-centered community. Let me ask you, how does, do these truths fit into your five-year plan or your retirement goals? Rest and leisure are important, but they're not the end. I just read a book in my time away called Reset. How to live a I'm going to paraphrase it. Reset how to live a life with gospel rhythms, a grace-filled rhythms, rather than a burnout life. And it talks a lot about rest. That rest, vacation, downtime is important. But in America, we make it the end. It's not the end. It's, it's, It's a refueling. It's a Sabbath. So that we can live lives for the progress and joy of others. It's not the end. The goal isn't to deny ourselves of the good gifts that the Lord has provided us to enjoy, but to experience maximum joy by living our lives for the progress and joy of others. Do you know who the richest man who ever lived was? I think you do. It's not Bill Gates. It's not Steve Jobs. It's not Warren Buffett. It's not Putin. Solomon. Listen to what Solomon had to say in Ecclesiastes 2, 1 through 11. He said, I said with my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said with laughter, it is mad and a pleasure. What use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I want you to hear all the myselfs. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had ever been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great. And surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done. And the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. It's all vanity. It's all going to go away. And what you have here is a shadow, a beautiful shadow of what awaits us at final salvation. It's just a shadow. To expend God-given resources for our pleasure alone is empty. 
So in contrast to Solomon's self-indulgence that reflects the natural inclination of my heart and your heart when it's unchecked, Jesus taught and embodied self-denial and loving service to others. Through the greatest act of humility, Jesus took the punishment for all of our vainglorious desires and ungodly pleasures so that through faith in this gospel, we might honor Christ in our living and honor Christ in our dying for the joy and the progress of others. We're here to honor the Lord by serving others. To live is Christ. Christ lived to serve, not be served. He is both our Savior and our example. In verse 26, just to make no confusion, because I know when I serve, I like to hear something back. My wife has a quote that everybody wants to be a servant until they're treated like one. But Paul wants none of the glory. Paul is not building his kingdom. He's building the Lord's kingdom. He says in verse 26, so that, all that before, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Anything good you see in me, in my service, is for the glory of God. I'm going to just finish with a poem just since I'm such a touchy-feely guy. I want to read this poem just because I like the name of the guy that wrote it. His name is C.T. Studd. <laughs> Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart, and from my mind would not depart. Only one life, twist soon be, twill soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one, soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord, to meet and stand before his judgment seat, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears. Each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep in joy or sorrow, thy word to keep faithful and true, whatever the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only, oh, let my love with fervor burn. And from the world now, let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say, t'was worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your holy and life-changing word. God, even as I declare your promises and your truth, God, it is, uh, it is counter-cultural to me and my flesh. But God, I know it's right in the bullseye of who I am in Christ. That you who knew no sin became my sin, that I might become the righteousness of Christ. That I who was, that you who were rich became poor so that 
I who was poor might become rich. And God, I pray that we wouldn't just hang on to these gospel promises and the hope that one day that we'll be with you. But God, I pray that we would live in light of these promises. And God, I pray that you'd give us new eyes and new ears to see other people as the way that you see them. And God, we know that we can't save anybody. We know that we can't transform or sanctify anybody. But God, we know that transformation comes by the Spirit of God through the Word of God in the context of the people of God. And I pray, God, that we would be a church of people who desire to press into the lives of one another for the joy and progress of each other. And God, I pray that we'd be ones who pray for one another, particularly for those that who are ensnared or entrapped in tough circumstances. And God, we pray that we know that you can deliver us from these temporal circumstances, but we, God, we pray that you would also remind us that ultimate deliverance is coming for your people upon your return on that day of Christ or if we leave this earth before you return. God, we have great hope that our salvation will be complete and we will be with you one day. God, in the meantime, I pray that you would empower us to live for your glory and honor and for the joyful progress of other people. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.